Welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, February 16th, 2024. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and coming up, Trump, NATO, and foreign aid. America and its standing in the world front and center this week. I'll talk with The Hill senior writer Alexander Bolton about his interview with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on the foreign aid package, as well as comments from Donald Trump about NATO. Also, terror alert scare, Mayorkas impeached, and young voters in the 2024 election all coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder, everybody, to tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. We are the one-stop shop you need for all of the big news that happened in Washington, D.C. We'll give you a recap of who said what, and then you decide what to do with it. And leave a five-star rating if you happen to listen to us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It absolutely helps the podcast grow. All right, everybody, here is your debrief for this week. Trump and NATO. Last weekend, Donald Trump made some eye-opening comments about U.S. support for NATO member countries that had non-MAGA Republicans, Democrats, and national defense hawks up in arms, not to mention European leaders. CBN's national security correspondent, Caitlin Burke, has more. If we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. The political blowback from those remarks was immediate, with President Biden calling this statement dangerous and fellow Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley adding, Putin kills his opponents. He invades free countries. This is not someone you ever want to pal around with. And you certainly don't want to give them the right to invade a friend. NATO countries have agreed to commit to spending 2% of their GDP on national defense. Most of them have not reached that goal. Trump took to social media Monday to repeat his stance, writing, quote, NATO has to equalize, and now they will do that if properly asked. If not, America first. I think uh, Europe is looking at the potential for a second Trump administration uh, with a bit of uh, a bit of fear. Simone Ledeen, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Mideast Policy, tells CBN News Trump's first term showed how he would approach NATO if he's elected again. Trump uh, certainly did not turn his back on NATO, but was uh, very firm about the need for NATO countries to contribute and pay their fair share. The White House, seeking to reassure NATO nations, Monday underscored the alliance's importance to national and European security. And we have a strong alliance. I, I think we, we have a responsibility to uphold those alliances. Meanwhile, the Senate is moving forward with a foreign aid package providing $95 billion to Ukraine, Israel and others. Some Republican lawmakers are using Trump's comments to justify opposition to the funding package. If you're not going to defend your own country, why should our taxpayers defend it for you? Caitlin Burke, CBN News, Washington. And some disturbing news. We learned on Friday morning that longtime Putin nemesis, Russian resistance leader, opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died in a Russian prison. Upon returning to Russia from Germany in 2021, he was arrested and thrown in prison. His mother says she saw him in prison on Monday and that he was in good spirits. Vice President Kamala Harris, speaking at the Munich Security Conference in Germany Friday morning, says Navalny's death is more proof of Putin's brutality. Foreign aid bill. This week, the Senate passed a foreign aid bill that would send $95 billion to Ukraine, as well as Israel and Taiwan, 70 to 29. The Senate bill strips out the border security immigration compromise that House and Senate Republicans blew up late last week. 
Senator Lindsey Graham, one of the no votes after initially being a yes on this foreign aid bill, agreeing with former President Trump that money going to Ukraine should be a loan. House Speaker Mike Johnson says the House will not take up the Senate's bill, despite claims from House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries that there are enough votes in the House to pass it. President Joe Biden forcefully urging House Republicans to take up the Senate bill. There's no question that the Senate bill was put on the floor in the House of Representatives. It would pass. It would pass. And the Speaker knows that. So I call on the Speaker to let the full House speak its mind and not allow a minority of most extreme voices in the House to block this bill even from being voted on. Even from being voted on. This is a critical act for the House to move. Speaker Johnson explained why they're not. But, but much more has to be done, of course, to secure the border. And what the Senate produced this week is silent on that issue. Senator McConnell and I have spoken about this in frank sessions, and let me be clear here again this morning. The Republican-led House will not be jammed or forced into passing a foreign aid bill that was opposed by most Republican senators and does nothing to secure our own border. Now, a reporter later asked Speaker Johnson if border security and immigration reform was a prerequisite for a foreign aid bill and it was so important to Republicans, why did Republicans oppose and inform Senate Republicans that the immigration compromise they reached was dead on arrival in the House, to which Johnson replied the bill didn't solve the border problem. Johnson says the House will take up issues in this foreign aid bill individually and will continue to focus on border security. Mayorkas impeachment, take two. One week after an embarrassing failure to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, House Republicans got a second crack at it this week with the return of Majority Leader Steve Scalise, this time moving two articles of impeachment along to the Senate successfully by one vote. CBN's Mark Martin has more on the vote and the next steps. After failing last week, the House succeeded Tuesday night in its second attempt to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It was an ultra-tight vote. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 213. The resolution is adopted. House Speaker Mike Johnson announced the results. The first impeachment of a sitting cabinet member in 150 years. The Republican-led House accuses Mayorkas of refusing to enforce immigration laws, holding him accountable for Biden administration policies, allowing millions of illegal crossings since President Biden took office. We did exactly what we should be doing. Now it's up to the Senate to do their job. Democrats call the impeachment a political stunt. They, along with some Republicans, say this is a policy disagreement and there's no evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. In a statement, President Biden said history will not look kindly on House Republicans for their blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship. On NBC's Meet the Press, Mayorkas emphasized the role of Congress. There is no question that we have a challenge, a crisis at the border, and there is no question that Congress needs to fix it, and we're doing everything we can within that broken system, short of legislation, to address what is a not just a challenge for the United States, but one throughout our region. 
Last week, Senate Republicans backed off of a bipartisan border deal they helped put together. A number of Republicans say that bill did not go far enough, and former President Donald Trump called on them not to support it. The Senate is expected to receive the articles of impeachment from the House later this month. A two-thirds vote is needed there to remove Mayorkas, but it's highly unlikely the measure will be taken up in the democratically controlled Senate. Mark Martin, CBN News. The impeachment trial date is set to begin in a couple of weeks on February 26th, although the Democrats are not likely to hold a long impeachment trial of Mayorkas and the president's immigration policies during an election year. And there are three things they can do to avoid any kind of hearing at all. First, a senator could offer a motion to dismiss the articles of impeachment. And that would dismiss the articles entirely, bringing the process to an end. Another option is that a senator could raise a point of order that could claim the articles are unconstitutional or violate the Senate rules in some way. And third, the Senate could vote to send the articles of impeachment to a committee. And then that committee could proceed with their own trial, but they would be able to keep evidence and witnesses away from the spotlight on the Senate floor, or the committee could delay action and leave the issue pending without a clear resolution. So don't look for a big Senate trial when things get underway later this month. NY3 election results in a local election that gained national interest because of the makeup of the House of Representatives. Democrats scored a big victory in New York's third congressional district on Tuesday night in a special election to replace the ousted former Republican Congressman George Santos. Democrat Tom Suozzi's defeat of Republican challenger Mozzie Pillip comes a little more than two months after Santos was expelled from Congress on corruption charges and accusations he lied about his qualifications during his campaign. During his celebration speech, Swazi had a message for the House GOP. Stop running around for Trump and start running the country. It's time to find common ground and start delivering for the people of the United States of America. Swazi previously served as Nassau County's representative to Congress from 2017 to 2023. He chose not to run for re-election in the last midterms, instead losing a primary challenge against Kathy Hochul in his bid for the governorship. Democrats rallied around him to send him back following Santos's expulsion. Shortly after numerous news outlets called the race, Pillip took to the stage to concede. And we did a great job. We are the fighters. Yes, we lost, but it doesn't mean we're going to end here. Pillip is a mother of seven and of Ethiopian descent. She immigrated to Israel when she was younger. She failed to hold on to the seat. Santos won by eight points back in November of 2022 in a county that had been growing more Republican. The morning after Swazi's victory, House Speaker Mike Johnson warning Democrats not to read too much into it. They spent about $15 million. Their candidate ran like a Republican. He sounded like a Republican talking about the border and immigration. That incumbent had been a three-term member of Congress, and he had a 100% name ID and a deep family history in the district. Our, our candidate was relatively unknown, you know, there was a weather event. That is in no way a bellwether of what's going to happen this fall. Some see Swansea's victory as a path to success for other Democrats in swing districts this fall. He blasted Republicans for snubbing the bipartisan immigration deal, but echoed concerns about illegal immigration with suburban voters and painted his Republican challenger, Mozzie Pillip, as an opponent of abortion rights. Democrats like Jim McGovern said it's clear voters are sending the GOP a message. They don't want a deranged former president who has been indicted more times than he's been elected 
to be calling the shots here. Meanwhile, Florida Republican Byron Donalds laying blame at the feet of New York Republicans who wanted Santos ousted. If he was found guilty, then yeah, he should remove himself from Congress. And if he wouldn't remove himself, then the chamber would have a responsibility to do that. But to preempt that, to score political points, was stupid. One of them, Congressman Marcus Molinaro, refusing to accept blame. There are a lot of decisions that have occurred these last couple of months that have shrunk the majority. Perhaps George Santos being honest would have kept one more seat here in Congress. Early voting also helped pave the way to a Swansea victory, something Republican Richard Hudson says his party must stop vilifying. Republicans have got to take advantage of early voting. We can't start so far behind. Donald Trump ripped into Mozzie Pillip's campaign on Truth Social afterwards, calling her a very foolish woman who didn't treat MAGA Republicans with enough respect. Trump in court. Donald Trump was in a New York courtroom on Thursday in one of two major legal cases having to do with his legal entanglements. On Thursday, this one, an attempt by his attorneys to throw out the Stormy Daniels hush money case against him. Meantime, in Georgia, his lawyers are asking for the prosecutor going after him to be kicked off the case, which could delay his trial in that state's election interference case for months. CBN's Hillary Powell has more on that. I'm going to have to sit here for months on a trial. I think it's ridiculous. It's unfair. Former President Donald Trump addressed cameras after a judge ruled his first criminal trial is set to start March 25th. Trump pleaded not guilty to nearly three dozen counts of falsifying business records and accusations. He tried to hide a relationship with Stormy Daniels and his attempt to buy her silence. He wanted the case dismissed, arguing it's politically motivated. Uh, They want to rush it because they want to get it desperately before the election. No cameras were in that courtroom, but a separate case in Atlanta is playing out publicly, where a Fulton County judge overseeing Trump's Georgia election interference case required a special hearing on misconduct allegations leveled against Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and Prosecutor Nathan Wade. Let's start back in 2019. So you and Mr. Wade met in October 2019 at a conference? That is correct. I think in one of your motions, you tried to implicate and slept with him at that conference, which I find to be extremely offensive. I think it's possible that the facts alleged by uh, the defendant could result in disqualification. I think an evidentiary hearing must occur. Willis admits to a personal relationship with Wade, but denied any financial conflict of interest that would disqualify her from the case. Intense testimony, Trump's lawyer questioned Wade for two hours. When did your romantic relationship with Ms. Willis begin? 2022. When? In 2022. Early 2022. So you were appointed in November of 2021. Yes, ma'am. A former friend and co-worker of Willis also testified she witnessed Willis's personal relationship with Wade before he was hired in Trump's Georgia election interference case. And did you observe them do things that are uh, common among people having a romantic relationship? Yes. Such as, can you give us an example? Hugging, kissing, disaffection. Trump and several co-defendants accused Willis of benefiting financially from the relationship. The former president acknowledges his court proceedings complicate the election. How do you plan on campaigning while you're in court? We want delays, obviously. I'm running for election. I can't, how can you run for election to be sitting in a courthouse in Manhattan all day long? 
Threat alert. Everyone got a little bit of a scare this week, at least those of us who are very much online during the course of a day. When the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee released a statement online urging the Biden administration to declassify information about a, quote, serious national security threat. Republican Congressman Mike Turner's statement gave no other details, and it came one day before National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was set to deliver a closed-door briefing to members of Congress about various threats. Jake Sullivan briefed senior lawmakers to address the issue, which White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby confirmed involved attempts by the Russians to put an anti-satellite weapon into space. This is not an active capability that's been deployed. And though Russia's pursuit of this particular capability is troubling, there is no immediate threat to anyone's safety. We are not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction here on Earth. Speaking at the White House briefing yesterday, Kirby was asked about U.S. defense capabilities against a weapon like this that would theoretically be able to shoot down U.S. satellites. I would not uh, speak definitively about our uh, our strategic deterrent capabilities one way or the other. We just don't we don't talk about that publicly. Over at the Pentagon, Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder didn't get into specifics, but confirmed this is not an immediate threat or an active capability by Russia. On any given day, the, the Department of Defense monitors threats from around the world. We work hard to mitigate those threats. Uh, and we'll take appropriate action in defense of the nation. And so today is no different. Following the meeting, the man who set off the firestorm, Chairman Mike Turner, said he was encouraged by Sullivan's briefing. I think the bottom line is, is that we all came away with a very strong impression that the administration is taking this very seriously and that the administration has a plan in place. Uh, we look forward to supporting them uh, as they go to implement it. Some, like Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, disagreed with Turner's decision to put out a vague statement about the threat on social media Wednesday. I certainly would not have done it like that, but in any event, we are where we are at this point, and um, it's very troubling. However, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi defended Turner's response. Well, he's the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, and I respect his judgment. Uh, we'll be seeing, we're going now to uh, Munich, uh, and so we'll be discussing it further there. But uh, uh, I don't criticize him, no. One can expect this to be a major topic at the Munich Security Conference in Germany this weekend. This also comes as members of Congress are considering an extension of a FISA bill that would allow the government to continue tracking foreign nationals who make contact inside the United States. Critics are concerned over innocent Americans getting swept up in that surveillance. A vote was expected to happen this week, but that was canceled, and it appears next week the House could consider the reauthorization of that FISA bill. Hunter Biden, FBI informant arrested. A former informant for the FBI has been arrested for allegedly making false statements to the Bureau and lying about President Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's dealings with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma Holdings at Harry Reid Airport in Las Vegas on Thursday. Special counsel in the Hunter Biden case, David Weiss, says 43-year-old Alexander Smirnov's story to the FBI was a, quote, fabrication, an amalgam of otherwise unremarkable business meetings and contacts that had actually occurred, but at a later date than he claimed, and for the purposes of pitching Burisma on the defendant's services and products, not for discussing bribes to Joe Biden when he was in office. A number of House Republicans have been pointing to the information Smirnoff gave to the FBI as proof of a connection between the president, Hunter Biden, and Burisma, releasing memos from the FBI against the Bureau's wishes 
to divulge the accusations made by Smirnoff to the public. President Biden's personal lawyer, Abby Lowell, tells CNN this is another instance of House Oversight Chairman James Comer and Intelligence Chair Jim Jordan peddling falsehoods based on dishonest, uncredible allegations and witnesses. Chairman Comer tells CNN the thrust of their case against Joe Biden does not revolve around Smirnoff. Rather, it's based on what they say is a large record of evidence, including bank records and witness testimony that they say proves Joe Biden knew of and participated in his family's business dealings. 2024 latest, age continues to be a major issue on the 2024 campaign trail. Now more so after last week's DOJ report on President Biden's supposed memory issues. But a new ABC News Ipsos poll out shows that a majority of Americans believe Donald Trump is too old too. CBN News White House correspondent Abby Robertson has more on the numbers. The party that dismisses their 80-year-old candidates is the party that will win president. Breaking down the numbers, the ABC News Ipsos poll reveals 86% of Americans see Biden as too old, while 62% say the same about Trump. For months, 52-year-old GOP candidate Nikki Haley has called for all candidates to undergo mental fitness tests. It's bigger than just Joe Biden. You can look at the same thing, whether it was Donald Trump getting me confused with Nancy Pelosi, his temper tantrums, the things that he's done. It is time for a new generational leader. Both Haley and Trump campaigned in South Carolina over the weekend, where Trump questioned the whereabouts of Haley's husband, a major in the Army National Guard who's on deployment. Where's her husband? Oh, he's away. He's away. What happened to her husband? Haley quickly answered back. If you mock the service of a combat veteran, you don't deserve a driver's license, let alone being president of the United States. The GOP South Carolina primary is February 24th. And even though it's Haley's home turf, current polls show, show Trump leading the former governor by more than 30 points. And how does Gen Z feel about the election and the future of the Republican Party in particular? CBN's Capitol Hill correspondent Matt Galka traveled to a Virginia university to find out. The president is on TikTok, the controversial app dominated by Gen Z. It's the latest attempt to court young voters in a consequential election year. The 2024 MockCon convention will now come to order. For 116 years, the students at Washington and Lee University in Virginia have been putting on mock con. The student-run mock convention sets out to mimic the real thing for whichever party is out of power. To put it bluntly, they are the very votes politicians are so desperately trying to tap into. Mock con has accurately predicted party nominees over 70% of the time, and the age group has the opportunity to help decide the next commander-in-chief. For junior Tommy Holstead, the choice is clear. And that is Donald Trump, and he definitely has my support, and he should have the entire country's. Holstead says there's no secret issue out there to win him over. For the Texas-born student, it's the border. Uh, and it's a policy that actually directly impacts me and my state and everything that, I guess, goes along with that. Um, and I think that his strong stance on the border uh, is really what sets him apart from like a lot of the other uh, candidates that are in the race. Henry Hayden runs the university's College Republicans chapter. He says younger voters value having their voices heard. Free speech, I think that's a very important thing. As some of the speakers highlighted, cancel culture. Um, really, I, I think our generation is not too enthusiastic about that. And for some young Democrats at Mott 
There was a strong desire to end the divisiveness they see in Trump's MAGA movement. The polarization in the government, I feel like it's extremely harmful to our government, and I feel like Republican and Democrat shouldn't be as, like, I guess, at odds as they are right now. A mock convention of the Republican Party has nominated Donald John Trump. Now it's up to the candidates to figure out if they can get the future of the country on their side. All right, everyone, that is your debrief for this week. And now it's on to our weekly deep dive. Well, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, one of the big issues in Capitol, on Capitol Hill this week was, of course, the foreign aid bill that the Senate agreed to. But it certainly is meeting with some stiff resistance in the House of Representatives to the point where it's unlikely the Senate bill will see the light of day on the House floor. Uh, but that certainly is not stopping some members of the Senate to continue pushing the House for a vote on it, or at least for a debate on it. One of those, of course, being Mitch McConnell. And joining me to talk a little bit about his interview this week is The Hill senior staff writer, Alexander Bolton. Alexander, welcome to the DC Debrief. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I know that with Senator McConnell, this is a personal issue from reading your story on The Hill. And and and. Listen, I mean, the, he goes back a long ways. He's a he's a long time old school. He's not a MAGA Republican senator. And so he obviously has a view of America's place in the world differently than, say, uh, the J.D. Vance's of the world and some of the other Republican senators who are more closely aligned with President Trump. So it sounded from your interview that he is really pushing full force against the notion from the Trump camp that aid to Ukraine is something that the U.S. doesn't need to do. What did, what did, you, what did he have to say to you about that? Well, he, he made some interesting points to me, and, and he revealed some personal history to me um, that his father was a foot soldier in George Patton's army and came face-to-face -face with the uh, Soviet Union's Red Army in Czechoslovakia after World War II. And McConnell still has the letters that his dad uh, wrote to his mom saying the Russians are going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the history of the Republican Party uh, going back to um, when Robert Taft was the most you know, prominent Republican in Washington, center from Ohio. And he ended up running for president in 1952, uh, lost to Dwight Eisenhower, who became president. That was a significant turning point for the Republican Party. Um, Taft opposed the creation of NATO. And McConnell's argument to me was, we won the Cold War. NATO worked. Eisenhower worked. Uh, Eisenhower was right. Um, and uh, basically, he's he's framing himself as a Republican in the tradition of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, of Ronald Reagan, of Teddy Roosevelt, of George H.W. Bush, who, be who believes in the necessity of America projecting power abroad. And Donald Trump and J.D. Vance, those others you mentioned, they're more in the Robert uh, Taft school of isolationism. Uh, he pointed out that Robert Taft opposed the Lend-Lease Act. I mean, uh, if, you know, if you know anything about World War II, that was instrumental. That gave uh, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, the authority at the time to give weapons to food, tanks, airplanes to the British. That was pivotal to beating Nazi Germany. And McConnell sees parallels between today's fight against Russia and what happened in Europe in the 1930s and 40s. And he says, you know, compared to the Cold War, things are more dangerous for America because not only do you have Russia threatening our interests, but you also have China. And his argument for weeks to his colleagues have been, if 
you let if you abandon Ukraine to Russia, then you are giving a green light to China uh, with regards to Taiwan. And of course, we have a lot of semiconductor production in Taiwan. It's very important to our economy, to our military, with all our smart weapons. So to give China a, a green light with regards to Taiwan is a, is a strategic blunder. That's the way he sees it. So he acknowledges that President, former President Trump is on the other side of this, and so are most Republican voters, if you look at the polls. But he said to me, every now, every once in a while, you run into an issue where you just have to do what you believe is right. And he believes the right thing here is to support Ukraine, contain Russian aggression. Right, because he understands the lay of the land, the popularity of Donald Trump, the popularity of Trump's ideas on this within the Republican Party. Does it seem like he is knowingly fighting a losing battle and that he's okay with that? Well, I think he believes that if Johnson were to put the Ukraine funding bill, which also funds Israel and uh, the Indo-Pacific region, uh, deterring Chinese aggression, it would also fund um, the U.S. military fighting off these missile attacks by Houthis against uh, shipping in the Red Sea. I mean, it addresses a variety of national security concerns. Um, McConnell is convinced that if Johnson were to put this Senate-passed bill on the House floor, it would pass with a large margin. Now, the hang-up here is that would it get a majority of House Republican votes? No, probably not. So it is. it does have minority support within the Republican Party, but it does have majority support uh, in the Congress. And the other thing that I, McConnell said to me is that he believes that, you know, if it weren't for Trump and the political risks of voting for this and getting crosswise with Trump, he thinks more Republicans would vote for this. And that the, the, really there is um, essentially just a reluctance by colleagues in the Senate and the House, Republican colleagues, to risk getting beat up on, pummeled by Donald Trump. And so, you know, I, I think he's not giving up on this. And, you know, in your intro, you said that this thing doesn't have any pass, chance of passing the House. That's not the way McConnell sees it. He thinks mm -hmm. it can get passed in the House. But what what uh, Speaker Mike Johnson is going to do is a real mystery. Yeah, it certainly sounds from at least Speaker Johnson like he's and still insisting that border security be attached to any kind of foreign aid bill. And uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, it, it's the Senate deal on immigration blew up last week, obviously, again, with uh, President Trump uh, signaling to his supporters not to support it. But looking at his comments this weekend about U.S. support for NATO and NATO countries and coming to their support in the case of a Russian attack and, uh, and, and NATO countries paying their fair share, I, I know that for a, a number of Republicans like McConnell and of his ilk, the idea of not going to defend your allies is something that many of Republican, many Republicans like that have an, have an issue with. But that's not necessarily the same way that other Republicans feel in, in the party about that particular issue. Did he get into that at all about the, the issue, the importance of this funding, not just being necessarily a handout to Ukraine, but as being in America's interest and, and knowing that somewhere down the line, if the United States enters into a conflict, we're going to want support and help from the very NATO countries and, and other Western allies that we are seeking to aid at this point right now. Well, McConnell was asked by another publication about Trump's comments um, regarding NATO and Trump's off the cuff somewhat disjointed remarks, really, saying that he'd let you know, Russia have their ways with countries that don't pay you know, their NATO dues. I mean, I think Republicans on the Hill didn't take that comment all that seriously. It was made at a rally. It was off the cuff. Um, you know, whether that would be Trump administration policy, 
it probably wouldn't be. I mean, let's be real. Um, but as far as NATO goes, you know, the what I think that what you know McConnell is pushing and, and others in the Republican Party and Democratic Party are pushing is that you know the the security uh, we provide to our NATO allies. Yes, you know we're doing all the spending and heavy lifting, and we have all the weapons and and materiel. But you know it also accrues to our benefit because having allies, you know, we're able to wield significant, you know, trade influence, economic influence, and other influence over those countries. It, NATO creates a sphere of American hegemony and influence that spreads throughout Europe. So let's think about it. What caused this war in the first place in Ukraine? Well, Vladimir Putin was worried about Ukraine getting too close to the Europeans, that they might someday end up in NATO. That is very critical to him. Why is he worried about that? Because Ukraine and NATO is good for the United States. It increases our economic power, our diplomatic power, our influence. And, you know, the the economic argument is a tough one for, I think, you know, people who are busy with their daily lives and putting food on the table and buying gas and all that stuff. But, you know, it was something that McConnell has addressed on the floor before, which is, we accrue huge benefits from our relations with Europe. I mean, the European Union has more people than the United States. I mean, it has a an economy on par with the United States. You know, to let Russia threaten that, that those marketplaces really threatens our economic interests here at home, and and it it, it threatens our ability to uh, you know, engage and open up markets around the world. You know. We're the richest country in the world. And why is that? Because we can sell to international markets. How do we sell to international markets? Because they follow the rule of law, because they follow our intellectual property rules, because they follow our, uh, you know, our various, the regulations that are necessary for American companies to do business over there. Those markets get shut out to us, then we are in a dire economic situation. We're seeing recession. I mean, you cannot underestimate the importance of international markets to American prosperity at home. And that is really what this is all about. And it's a difficult argument to make because it's highly complex and it's highly theoretical. But that is a big part of what this debate is all about. When when you spoke to McConnell, did he seem affected at all uh, did, by the by the border security deal blowing up by the fact that uh, they had to strip it from the foreign aid package, the seeming resistance by Republicans in the House. Does he, is he at all worried that his political capital as the, as the at one time de facto leader of the party, is he concerned at all that his GOP, that his capital with inside the party is waning at all? Is that, and does he believe that that's true? Well, you know, there have been stories written in the last couple of weeks because there's been such sharp criticism, criticism of him by you know, his his usual critics in the Senate Republican conference, people like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, um, you know, calling for him to step down as Republican leader. I mean, there was, I mean, this this border security deal was something that he tapped Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma to negotiate. It wound up getting, you know, only four Republican votes on the floor. So, I mean, that was a setback. That was embarrassing. But, um, you know, it's all it's all part of the process. And I think when I sat down with McConnell, I mean, he seemed very comfortable, relaxed. He seemed, um, you know, genuinely pleased that this um, that this vote for Ukraine funding got uh, 22 Republican votes, including McConnell's vote. Um, you know, for McConnell, it was all about Ukraine funding. And as he's told reporters and told us, um, you know, the only reason he decided to you know add this border security deal to it is because 
Republicans demanded that there be border provisions. So then when the party then changed its mind and said, well, we don't want border part of it as part of this deal, you know, he was fine with pulling that off. He never really, you know, that was never what this was about for him. For him, it was about getting that Ukraine funding passed. That's what he thinks is so critical. So um, I asked him directly, you know, do, do you think your influence in the party is diminishing? I asked him point blank. And he said, well, you know, people who say that forget about the times I voted to, you know, raise the debt ceiling and to keep the government funded. And, you know, going back, looking at the record in 2014, I think he was only, you know, one of maybe 14 Republicans to vote to raise the debt ceiling. And then again, in 2021, you know, a number number of, he's one of just a handful of Republicans to vote to raise the debt ceiling in 2021. So, you know, the way he put it to me is, you know, these are issues where, you know, most Republicans, they don't want to raise the debt ceiling. They don't want to, they don't want to fund government. Mm -hmm. We got to do it. And, yeah. you know, he's just acknowledging the political realities that you, you, you know, a, a party, you know, Republicans can grandstand on the debt limit and, and government funding and even Ukraine funding. But at the end of the day, you know, s- someone has to take the tough votes to basically, you know, pr- protect the country. And that's the way McConnell sees it. And I know that if Ted Cruz were on this program, he would have some very articulate, you know, counterpoint there, but <laughs> he's not. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll get him on. Um, and of course, that government funding, uh, keeping the doors open, uh, that that deadline is is rapidly approaching as well. Last thing for you, uh, we've heard a lot about the senator's health, uh, some of the issues that he has had. And uh, I'm just curious, uh, how did you find him to be health-wise when you were speaking to him? You know, I didn't see any uh, physical trace or hint of that fall uh, he suffered in you know, March of last year. He, he got he suffered a concussion and a fractured rib after he fell at a private event at the Waldorf Astoria. It was March, almost a year ago. You know, he missed weeks and weeks of time. Uh, he was away from the Capitol. He was in rehab, um, and he had those you know a couple of those incidents last year where he froze up before cameras, but. You know, he really seems to have regained his strength. I mean, he does turn 82 years old on, I think it's February 20th. So, you know, anyone who has older parents or grandparents, you know, they know that when you get up to your 80s, you just don't have the physical strength that you, that, that you used to. And, you know, he is certainly getting older. But as far as his health, it seems very good to me. He was, you know, relaxed. Um you know, energetic and, um, and, and talking to his staff, they, they feel that, you know, he has really uh, made a, a comeback here. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's going to, I personally think he's going to you know, remain leader uh, through 2026. Um, I think Republicans are going to win back the Senate in the fall. And um, I think that, you know, McConnell's term lasts until the end of 2026. I think he will remain as leader. Of course, you know, the only, there are some caveats there, you know, I mean, that's my prediction, but yeah. it also depends on events. Now, if yeah. Republicans fail to win back the Senate majority, despite how favorable the map is, that'd be problematic for him. I think he would face another, uh, you know, renewed leadership challenge. And then again, if you know, if Trump is elected president, you know, Trump has made it clear he doesn't like McConnell. He wants McConnell out of that mm-hmm. job. Um, you know, would he be able to do that if he were president? Well, I think if McConnell wins back the Senate majority, you can say, hey. I got us to the promised land, so I deserve two more years. I think most of his colleagues would agree with that. So I, I think that unless Republicans, you know, have a, another disaster at the polls this year, um, if they do win back the Senate, I think he stays on as leader through 2026. 
Well, it's a, it's a really good interview, a lot of good information in there, and we will have a link to the interview. Uh, so if people want to check it out, they can go do that. And they can also go to thehill.com uh, and read all of Alexander Bolton's terrific stuff there. Uh, Alexander, thank you for joining me on the DC Debrief. Thanks for having me on. Well, now it's time for the closer. New information out this week by the Federal Trade Commission found adults in the U.S. lost a record $10 billion collectively due to scams last year. The reasons for the fraud ran the gamut from investments, business dealings, romances gone wrong, and government services. About 690,000 people were tricked into giving someone or some entity money they didn't have to. Most scams averaged around $500. Now compare this to 2022, when about 70,000 fewer Americans were scammed for about a billion dollars less. The FTC notes that there typically aren't enough police to go after the fraudsters out there, making it fairly easy to get away with these crimes. Last year saw a jump particularly in business imposter scams. That's where a criminal will impersonate a business or other legitimate organization to get you to give them money. Also, scams mimicking government services. The FTC says to watch out for phishing emails with weirdly formatted subject lines, and they say, do not open any attachments that look suspicious or that you're not expecting. Remember, you can always call a business or a government entity for confirmation if you have seen something in your email before opening an attachment or if you've gotten a phone call from someone. And that if you're not expecting a phone call from someone at tech support or a business of some kind or a federal government agency, it's most likely not them. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please, again, tell a friend or family member about the DC Debrief. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief. <laughs>